Hey there, weirdos. Hey, we're not talking about aliens this episode or man-shaped moths. Well, actually, I do take that back. We will for a hot oh. second. Yeah, just for just for a second. But then we're jumping back into some true crime. Hmm. So again, we only do true crime with a purpose here when we pull it from the mysterious grab bag of weird here on the podcast. So please stay tuned to the end of the episode because then you can learn how you can help out this case. So with that, let's jump right in to Lost. So something that we're really excited about doing here on the podcast is including your listener stories. So if you have something weird to share, you can contact us on social media at Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast on Insta and at Mysteriously Eclectic Pod on TikTok and follow along with our antics there, but also shoot us a message and tell us about your weird experience. We can keep it anonymous, but we would love to share it in an upcoming episode. So this week's weirdo story is coming to us from Wisconsin. So Aaron, can you share the story with us? This story comes to us from a listener who was returning home from a gymnastics meet with his 10-year-old daughter in rural Wisconsin. As they rounded the corner to their home, the man, who we'll call Fred, noticed three odd lights in a field across from their house. The lights were moving in different directions, seemingly independent of each other, and very low to the ground. It didn't seem possible for it to be an airplane. Fred rolled down his window, thinking perhaps the sound could help identify the cause of the lights. To his surprise, it was completely silent, except for this whooshing noise, almost like the sound of moving air. He slowed his vehicle and directed his headlights off towards the direction of the lights. All at once, the three lights joined together in a triangle formation and took off almost directly vertical and now acting in unison. Fred and his daughter sat there dumbfounded and didn't discuss what they saw for about 10 to 15 minutes. Fred's daughter finally asked him what he thought that it was that they had just experienced, and he was honest. He told her he didn't know, but he had a theory. He knew there wasn't an explanation he could offer her. They never talked about it again until just a year ago. His daughter started watching some of the leaked UFO footage and researching more about UFOs. This experience was what compelled her to look into this kind of stuff. She finally asked Fred if he remembered the event, and he obviously did. Dad, I think we saw a UFO, she said. And Fred was like, yeah, I think so too. And we also think so too. Thank you so much for sharing that. Again, reach out to us on social media to share your story. So strap in, folks, because I have a wild story for you. This story brings us to Jackson, Michigan. Now, Erin, you lived in Michigan. Do you know where this is? No, I don't know where this is. <laughs> it's actually, you know what? I, I, I 
I looked it up and I forgot where it was. <laughs> Can you look up where Jackson, Michigan is while I continue to talk? Um, <laughs> so it's Saturday in early April and Amber, a 35-year-old mother of four, is in her apartment. Amber and her mom are chatting on the phone and it's just a normal conversation. But Amber breaks it off because she has some studying to get done. You see, Amber is a busy lady. She's a mother of four, which she shares custody of four children with her ex-husband. She also works full-time at a consulting firm. She's an administrative assistant there who just got a big promotion. But she was also going back to school and was carrying a 4.0 average. So this particular weekend, she did not have her kids and she really wanted to take advantage of the quiet and get some studying done. So her mom hangs up the phone and that's it. A totally normal conversation with her daughter. So did you figure out where this place is? I did. So this was not really where I lived. I actually lived in Harrison. My family owned a campground there and that's directly in the middle of the state. If you make a mitten with your hand, the Michigan mitten, <laughs> the Michigan mitten, and you point to the center of it, that's where I lived. This is more towards the bottom of the state, but yeah, I've never, I've never been there before. Thumb side of the mitten. Kind of the middle, the okay. middle of the mitten. Okay. I'd say. All right. Got it. Got it. Thank you. So two days later, Amber's mom is shocked when she receives a phone call from, I think it's her mom's sister. The woman who called her was Amber's aunt. Amber's aunt received a phone call from the consulting firm that Amber worked at because- Can I just make a comment that I yeah. love that you also say aunt like I do? I know we've talked about this, yes. but if you are listening to this and you also say aunt- let us know. Yeah, let us know because it is, it is up in the comments because I take a lot of flack for saying aunt. I JJ, do too. Yeah, JJ's always like, you mean aunt? And <laughs> it just like hurts my ears. It and does. aunt is a bug that crawls on the ground and aunt is a family member. Yes. So anywho, Amber's aunt received a phone call from where Amber worked and Amber had not shown up for work for now the second day. Amber's parents lived in Georgia, but her aunt lives right there in Michigan. So she heads over to Amber's house and knocks on the door, but nobody answers. Calls to her phone were also going straight to voicemail. And this is completely unlike Amber. So right away, they call the police. The police arrive and right away, they're taking this very seriously, which is good because in a lot of cases, sometimes the police are not always right away to get on it. But in this case, they knew something was off. The house was forensically searched, but everything was normal. No struggle seems to have taken place. There was no signs of forced entry. No one seems to have taken anything. Her purse is still sitting by the door, but her wallet, keys, and her car are all missing. Her cell phone's laying on the bed next to her computer, and all of her books were laid out. It almost looks like she was in the middle of studying, grabbed just the bare essentials, and left, which is weird because she was a always-have-her-phone-with-her kind of person. Which I get it. I'm kind of the same way. So if I'm somewhere and my phone's not with me, assume that I'm abducted. So they do all the normal things. They interview the ex-husband. He's quickly cleared. The place where Amber works does security contracting for the government. So she does have access to sensitive information. So there is a theory that maybe someone took her either to access the information that she has or to silence her because of the information that she has. 
as part of a missing person investigation, her name was put into a database that would have been accessible across the country. And this is a game changer because they end up getting a hit on her car all the way in Georgia. So remember, she's in Michigan and they find her car in Georgia. So that's 600 miles away or about 9.25 hours according to Google. So this is in Tunnel Hill, Georgia. Her car is found in the parking lot of a Dollar General. Tunnel Hill is a teeny tiny little town south of Chattanooga, Tennessee and north of Dalton, Georgia. Now I'm actually kind of familiar with this area in general. I've stayed in Dalton, Georgia a few times when I've been driving from Chattanooga to Atlanta, and I've never known, heard of, saw a sign, nothing for Tunnel Hill. So it's definitely small, not a place that you would be going to. It's not a destination is what I'm trying to say. No offense to any Tunnel Hillians yes. out there. What was close to Tunnel Hill, though, was her parents. They lived in Calhoun, Georgia, which was only about 35 miles away. So immediately there was kind of hope that maybe she's there. Maybe she was on her way to go visit them. But if that's the case, why didn't she say anything? Yeah. And where is she? Why didn't she get there? And also, I mean, she has four kids. So it's just strange that she wouldn't have said something. She wouldn't have made anyone aware of these plans. I should mention, I feel like every single episode, I'm like, I need to acknowledge the squeaky chair. I need to acknowledge Daphne with her little jingles. Well, this episode, I need to acknowledge that I have the window open and the birds are very happy outside and they are just a singing the song of their people and I'm just going to let them go. So if you can hear a stray bird a chirping, I'm just going to let it go. So <laughs> enjoy the sound of the birds if you can hear them. So anyway... The car is outside of the Dollar General, and they go through the car, and everything seems pretty normal. But what's strange is that her wallet is right in the car on the seat out in the open, and the keys are locked inside the car. So everything that she needs is in the car. ID, cash, keys, everything except Amber. And it seems so obvious. Like, even the wallet is just sitting there. So they kind of wonder, is it like a clue? Is it a breadcrumb? That's immediately what I thought. Like, mm -hmm. it seems like, I don't know where this is going to go, but this almost seems like a sign. Like, I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to leave my stuff in. I'm going to leave him a sign. Exactly. It just seems so obvious. They also find a receipt for the dollar store, that dollar store, for 8.04 a.m. on Sunday. Now, remember the last that she was heard from was on Saturday. So they check the footage and, oh my gosh, the footage is there. It wasn't taped over. It was visible. This is like a miracle because that never seems to be the case. I feel like all the things are going right. Exactly. So exactly. Like they immediately take the case seriously. They're able to get footage. Yeah, you're right. Everything is going their way. The footage is haunting. They show it to Amber's parents and immediately they're like, that is her. You can see her walking around the store. She has a list in her hand. Everything looks normal. It just looks like your normal shopping trip. Like you could see her pick up objects. She kind of like looks at it, reads the label. Sometimes she'll put it down. Sometimes she puts it in her basket. She heads to the counter eventually. She grabs some, some chapstick from a little display thing, like an impulse buy, like we all do, puts it on the counter, buys it. They do notice though, at one point she looks right at the camera and there does seem to be something a little, I don't know, like 
significant about it. So that's another moment where they wonder, is she trying to say like, hello, it's me. I'm here. You know, is there a purpose to that look at the camera? Now, there are no cameras outside the store in the parking lot. And the clerk didn't really recall seeing anything strange happening outside. Now, keep in mind, it's 8 a.m., not like 8 p.m. or anything where it would be dark or anything like that. So this is where all the leads just kind of stop. So her dad walks the swamp behind the store and he finds nothing. And it was just so sad in the documentary. Like he's out there and he just seems like this sweet older man. And he's out there. And I mean, his legs were all torn up and bleeding from walking through the swamp looking for his daughter. But a few days later, the GBI, which is the main investigation unit there, um, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So a few days later, they set up a professional grid search of the rural area behind the Dollar General store. And it's super rural. It's actually mountainous behind that area. It's like Appalachia back there. Oh, Appalachia? freaks me out there's so many like weird tiktoks and stuff really? about it yeah okay funny story <laughs> so <laughs> deliverance when i was really young i was probably like i think it was in middle school i was at some sleepover mm-hmm. and we were each allowed all the girls were allowed to pick out a movie to watch during the sleepover no and they all picked out like amanda Bynes movies like random like cute things oh someone picked out finding nemo Oh my Finding gosh. Nemo. And I'm like, oh, I just saw this thing on MTV where they were making fun of Deliverance. So I picked out Deliverance. No. And we watched it. And some of the girls were like screaming. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you got a part of mine. Yes. Yes. And oh I was my gosh. I was crying laughing because it was so it was so bizarre. I am like traumatized from that movie. We lived. Oh, I'm hoping I don't offend anyone here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, anyone who listens who, to this, who I used to live near in a past life. But we lived in a very rural area, and there were just some strange folks that lived near where I used to live. And there was this one particular family that was, there was a particular kid that sort of remind us of someone from the movie Deliverance. Oh, was it the one who played the banjo? Yes, yes. Oh, no. Yes. And so (laughs) I got a little older and I watched the movie not being prepared at all for what the movie was about. I just knew the dueling banjos and the kid with the overalls and the banjo. Same. Not having any idea about the you got a purted mouth and the squeal like a pig part and I was I was traumatized i was traumatized so anyway i need to i need to collect myself here for a moment so anyway so this area is beautiful and i mean it is beautiful out there but it would have been an absolute nightmare to try to search for somebody but they do a pretty thorough search and then this area is hit with a crazy outbreak of tornadoes so to your point everything had been going perfect but this storm ended up having tons of tornadoes that caused Aww. tons of damage. And the whole area was just kind of devastated. And they ended up having search and rescue efforts that needed to be staged for tornado victims. So unfortunately, a lot of that search effort that was, you know, all being directed towards Amber kind of stopped. 
Now, this was horrible for the family because unfortunately, something very similar had happened many years ago to her mom's brother. He went missing after leaving a party and he was missing for two years. Oh my gosh. Before his remains were found. No. Yeah. He evidently had died in the elements. So to have had this happened again now to her daughter must have just been completely unbearable. Like I can't even imagine. And they said just living in that limbo of not knowing and now having it happen and having, you know, the worst case scenario with her brother, you know, Mm -hmm. was just a horrible situation. But suddenly... After three weeks, they get a lead. So Amber had this very identifiable angel tattoo on her back. And a police officer who had heard of Amber's case was watching a news article about a Jane Doe in Gillette City, Illinois, about a woman who had lost her memory. Oh. So... The hospital ends up reaching out to the investigator on Amber's case, and they make the 600-mile drive out to Gillette City PD with Amber's parents, and lo and behold, it's Amber. It's Amber. What the heck? She has no memory of who she is, no idea what happened, no idea who her parents are. The doctors explain to her parents that she apparently is suffering from transient global amnesia. She is physically fine. But her memory seems to stop at age 12. Anything beyond that is gone. Even looking at the mirror is terrifying to Amber because she expects to see her 12-year-old self, not a 35-year-old woman, which just think about that for a second. It's like 13 going on 30. It is. (laughs) It is. I cannot imagine. And then to find out, like, you know, you you have an ex-husband, you've got four kids, a job, I just... I, I can't imagine. I did not think this story was going I know you this didn't. way at all. I'm I know. such like, what's happening? So for background, I didn't tell anything. I didn't tell Erin anything about this episode, which she had a little bit of anxiety about. <laughs> she was like, do I need to look anything up? I'm like, nope. Amber is okay. Physically, she is okay. So her parents, they sound like just amazing people. And they go to meet her and they're like, it's okay. And they reintroduce her to her children and they just work with her to reintroduce her to her life and help her relearn the memories that she's lost. A few memories have come back. And what she can remember is that she was studying and she decided to take a break and to go to the gas station, which was right down the road, and to just grab something. She grabbed her keys and her wallet and hopped in her car. And she did one of those things where she was like, oh, crap, I forgot my phone. It's just right down the road. I'll be fine. I'm just going to go. And so she continued on. And that's it. That's all that she remembers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the doctors believe that she spent 3.5 weeks in what's called a dissociative fugue state. So basically what this is, is a super rare psychological state in which you just kind of go about your life in a state of habit rather than awareness. It's like autopilot. After hearing it described, I understand it more like when, you know, when you're driving and you have that moment where you're just kind of zoning out thinking about something Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're like, wait, where am I? Yeah. Have you ever done that? And you're like, 
what exit am I at? You know, you just kind of don't recognize where you are. Yeah. Or like after we moved, both my husband and I would occasionally just start driving to our old house. Then we have to go, Mm -hmm. wait a second, where are we? No, we don't live here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you have that moment where you're like, okay, where am I? And I mean, at least I don't think I'm veering all over the road. I mean, I guess I don't know, but I don't think that there's cars crashing behind me. So you're successfully driving, you're successfully doing the things, and you're able to do things based off muscle memory. It usually happens after like a traumatic event, and it's very rare. So, I mean, I should say that right away. It is very rare. So in Amber's case, they think Something happened at the gas station. She doesn't remember anything, but she has this reoccurring fear of a man coming up behind her, spinning her around with his left hand on her right shoulder. So I should clarify, she doesn't remember a man spinning her around. She just has like a fear of that. Oh. Mm-hmm. So they think that maybe that happened and it was traumatic. Maybe he did something to her. And it set her into this fugue state. So I guess dissociative fugue state is somewhat of a controversial diagnosis. Some people think that it's fake, but fugue means running away in French. So I guess that some people think that that's what these people are doing. But this psychological state has appeared in medical literature for hundreds of years. It's so rare. It only happens to about two of a thousand people. So it's just not very well studied. According to an interview with a doctor that I watched in one of the documentaries that I'll link to, your automatic behaviors, like your muscle memory and your habits, those stay intact, but your sense of identity is what's impacted. Usually, as we mentioned, this is the result of emotional trauma or physical trauma. Like generally, it won't just happen to a completely normal person living a completely normal life. But the crazy thing about Amber is that is kind of what happened. (laughs) She was kind of living a normal life. But I mean, she was stressed out. She did have a lot going on. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. So now here's there's another thing, you know, to worry about. Yeah, I was already making plans like I'm going to always bring my phone with me and I'm going to put it one contact as in case I ever lose my memory, call this person first. Yeah, so I wanted to do a bit more research to understand if there are any other recent cases. <laughs> so <laughs> during, we took a bit of a break here and Erin was talking about this weird gang that they have where she lives. It's around this area and... I don't know if I can say the name. No, you don't have to say the name. I just. (laughs) Apparently it's a group of people going around and um, like scamming other people. They have a really dumb name though. And I was saying it reminds me of something that would be like from West Side Story or whatever. I was like, do they like walk around snapping going like da 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 you know, and like frolicking and like parking garages. I hope they do. And they're not dangerous. They're just scamming people. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's da- that's bad, but it's not like they're going around. Got to call up Officer Krupke. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Okay. So anyway, I was doing more research and I wanted to know if there were any other cases where something like this was a theory of what happened to the person. And I was hoping for another case like Amber's where the person turns up healthy and safe, but very confused. 
but unfortunately this next case is still open. So pay attention because who knows, maybe you might know something. Maybe you can break the case. Hannah Up was a 32-year-old teacher living in St. Thomas. Now, Erin, have you ever been to St. Thomas? I have not. Oh. <laughs> Why did I have to think about it? I don't know. I thought you were in St. Thomas. Didn't you go on a cruise? I went to Jamaica, Lavity, Haiti, and the Bahamas. Oh, okay. All right. Well, my mom went to St. Thomas. She didn't take me. That's sad. Yes, mom. <laughs> that is sad. I hear it's very pretty. How how dare you? I hear that it's gorgeous, but, well, I wouldn't know, now would I? <laughs> so anyway, Hannah was a teacher at a Montessori school, and she was just very involved in her community. She was well-liked. She had lots of friends. And she moved to the islands from Maryland in 2014, and it sounded like she just kind of wanted a new start. She was a ball of energy and just a super passionate person. When she did something, she did it a thousand percent, just threw herself into everything that she did. She just seems like a very passionate person and a very fun person, too. It sounded like she was just a super fun person to be around. This was September 2017. So the school year was just about to start, but the hurricane season was also in full force and Hurricane Irma was barreling towards St. Thomas. So the whole island is bracing for this hurricane and it hit on September 6th. Hannah hunkered down with friends in the laundry room of her home. And I guess it was a really harrowing experience. She was texting her mom and the window broke at the house that they were at. So the whole thing flooded. Irma actually hit our family home at the time in Florida. And I remember the Weather Channel guy was actually standing right outside the entrance for a subdivision, oh my which is never a good sign. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't cause any damage. It ended up being fine. It kind of petered out before it hit Naples, where we were. But we've been hit twice since we've moved out to that area. And so we officially hate hurricane season. But Anyway, yeah, the last one I was joining, I was even joining face group, Facebook groups yes. for her. I'm like, I don't even live here, but I want to see if yes. I can find her information. Hurricane Ian was, that one was rough. <laughs> but anyway, so Irma hit St. Thomas hard. The island woke up to a complete mayhem on September 7th. No power, no drinking water. I guess Hannah's boyfriend went to check on her and he could tell that she just like hadn't slept. She was very stressed out. On September 12th, on September 12th, there was a staff meeting at her school because you see St. Thomas was in the path of yet another category five hurricane. Maria was headed right their way. And this was obviously very scary because the island was already a complete mess. And do you remember this? I do. I do. Yeah, these it was Irma and then Maria. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they're going to get hit again. So Maria was headed right their way, and everyone was trying to get off the island. Hannah's boyfriend was actually one of those people, but Hannah was in her school, busily prepping her classroom for the hurricane, and her coworkers said that she did seem a little off. They said that her voice was very sing-songy, and she just didn't seem her normal self, and I guess her reactions and her behaviors didn't seem 
totally appropriate for what was actually happening. Right. Yeah. When you say sing-songy, I just immediately think of me when I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's Ex- okay. And inside exactly. I'm like, this is not fine. This is not okay. I know. I kind of thought of that too, actually, which that was actually my reaction where I could see if someone saw me and I was under a great deal of stress and I'm running around and I'm going, it's okay. It'll be fine. Everything's good. Mm-hmm. You know, that they might be like, oh, she seemed like really chill. And inside I'm like, everything's fine as like, you know, the flames are burning behind yes. me. So I kind of thought that too, you know, was she just, you know, freaking out inside and that was her way of like calming herself because right. that's how I talk to myself when I'm stressed. So mm-hmm. It's interesting that you thought that because that's what I thought too. So September 14th, Hannah's roommate sees her leave the house at 8 a.m. This is the last official sighting of Hannah. Her school was supposed to have another staff meeting that day and she did not show up, which was very unlike her. So alarm bells went off immediately with her friends and coworkers, especially with a hurricane on the way. They check her house and her car was gone, her purse was gone, her phone, all those type things. And they call her family back home and right away they're like, look by water. And everyone in St. Thomas is like, what? So you see, this is not the first time this has happened with Hannah. She's actually been missing before. Twice. What? Twice, actually. (laughs) So let's go back to August 28th. 2008 in New York City. Hannah was 23 years old. She was a Spanish teacher at Thurgood Marshall Academy. Once again, it was right before the school year was set to begin and Hannah just didn't show up for her first day of school. She had lots of friends she worked with. She sounded excited for the upcoming school year, but when the day rolled around that she was supposed to show up, she just never showed. Her roommate said that they last saw her go for a run Inside the house was her wallet with all of her money. Right away, this was a huge deal. It was treated as a homicide investigation. And I mean, I hate to say it, but it fit the bill for what the media eats up in a missing person case right away. Mm -hmm. She was a young woman, white, which kind of like the Gabby Petito thing. She's pretty. She was a teacher. So the media jumped in right away all over it, and Hannah's face was everywhere. There were not many leads in the case until around day nine when a man called the police with a really solid lead. The man tells police that he saw Hannah inside a New York Apple store. They were able to pull surveillance from the store, and bingo, Hannah's mom knows that immediately it's her. They show Hannah's mom the footage and immediately they she knows that it's her. But something seems off about her. She couldn't really put her finger on it, but she did not seem normal to her. While in the store, they're able to confirm that Hannah logged into her Gmail while she was there and then she immediately logged off. They were also able to follow Hannah's trail back to a fitness club where she'd been using the shower. She had used her key fob to get into the place, and they knew it was her, so now it was just a manner of catching her. The police at this point totally think that she's faking it for some reason. They think that she's just, like, trying to get attention or whatever at this point. So the man at the Apple store, he actually knew her. He went to graduate school with her, and he asked her if she knew that everybody was looking for her, and she just kind of, like, dismissed it. And waved him off. So, I mean, that was a little sus, too. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. 
But this next situation that Hannah finds herself in, nobody would put themselves in on purpose, at least not someone in their right state of mind. So it's September 16th, and a Staten Island ferry is on its way to St. George, and the captain spots a woman out in the water, like way out in the water. She was somewhere near the Robins Reef Lighthouse, which is technically in New Jersey, and she was floating face down in the water. So she, it's not like she was swimming or anything. And the people thought it was actually a body. They send a rescue boat out and they kind of like fish her out of the water and it's Hannah. They bring her to the hospital and she's dehydrated. She's badly sunburnt and she's hypothermic, but she's alive. And she was face down? She was face down. Oh my gosh. So I'm not even really sure how she's alive. Right. But she she recovered enough to kind of talk to doctors and talk to her mom. And it's clear she does not remember anything. She remembers going for a run and then being in an ambulance on her way to the hospital. She felt like it was about 10 minutes, but it was actually three weeks. The doctors again diagnosed her with this dissociative fugue state. The same thing that happened with Amber, but a lot of people didn't buy it. She received tons of criticism in the media, so much that she ended up moving. Through all of it, she only gave one interview to a journalist, and it was like an off-camera interview. And I don't know, when I listened to it, to me, she sounded really genuine. She sounded truly embarrassed and confused about what happened to her. And I was about her age in 2008. I was a little younger. And the last thing I would have ever wanted was my name in the news and, you know, my story plastered all over the place. It would have been completely mortifying. Same. That's mm-hmm. that's a fear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I remember I went through a breakup during that time in my life where, I don't know, like we had been together for a long time and I felt like some people just kind of like talked about it a little bit on social media and probably not even, but in my mind, I felt like people were talking about it. And just that to me was mortifying, just Mm -hmm. mortifying. The fact that people were talking about my business, even if they weren't, was so embarrassing and just awful. Like I cannot imagine on that scale finding out that like your picture was plastered all over the place and all these people were looking for you. And now they think that you're a liar and they think that you're crazy. Like I just can't imagine going through that on purpose. And furthermore, if she was going through it on purpose, she clearly was dealing with some sort of mental health issue that needed to be addressed. And it sounds like if she was going through it on purpose, she would have tried to capitalize off of this and Ex- she's not. Exactly. Exactly. Now, remember I said it happened twice, this poor girl. So it happened again about five years later. So that would be what, 2013, I mm-hmm. think. And she moved to Maryland. And again, in September, right before the school year was starting, she came to sitting in a filthy creek in suburban Maryland. She had no idea how she got there, and she came to on her own this time, though. She kind of pieced together that she'd been out of it for about two whole days. She does not know what she was doing during those two whole days, but she called her mom, and she said, please come get me. There was no media this time. No one reported her missing. Thank goodness. But also, thank goodness she was safe, and you know she was able to kind of work through this on her own. 
I would put an Apple AirTag like yeah. in all my shoes mm-hmm. and I would like put it on your phone technically. Yeah. I mean, really. <laughs> I would know if you were missing yeah. like right away. So to me, this lends credibility to the first situation that it happened again and it wasn't like it was some big media thing. So she moved to St. Thomas to get away from this. She really wanted to start over again. And I guess she had a friend who said, what happens if this happens again in St. Thomas? And she actually made a joke. Well, it's an island. It's a pretty small place. Someone should be able to find me. So apparently when she was diagnosed the first time, they told her that it would probably never happen again. It's so rare that this would probably never happen again. But it's already happened to her twice. This brings us back to St. Thomas. Hannah's friends and family are desperately trying to find her before Hurricane Maria hits the island. And they take the advice of her mom and they look near water. Her favorite beach was Sapphire Beach. And Hannah was a swimmer. And I don't think I mentioned that before, but not only did she just enjoy the water, but she swam competitively too. So not only do you have a situation where she potentially could be in the midst of a mental crisis, but she's an incredibly strong swimmer and a very capable one. I could relate to this just a smidge. We have a friend who is a really great runner. He's He has actually run like ultra marathons. He's just an incredibly talented runner. And when we were young, he had a tendency sometimes to have a few too many drinks, as we all did. Mm-hmm. And he, there was a, there was one time in particular, he took off running like into the woods. <laughs> and oh it was just such a bad combination because we knew none of us, he could outrun all of us. None of <laughs> us could ever run as far as he did. And I remember us really considering calling the police, being like, what do we do? Because he could run for miles and miles and miles. What do we do? And he did eventually come back. But I understand that combination when you have someone who is very, very capable in that area, but maybe in a state where they're not making the best choices. It's just a scary combination. I know someone who that happened to. I will let them remain nameless, (laughs) but they were drunk and they decided to run back home, which was miles and miles away from where they were. They said about halfway home, they were like, they finally like sobered up and they were like, oh no. (laughs) Oh my goodness. My parents have a friend. Sorry, this is a lot of stories, but I feel like this last one I have to tell. So my parents have this friend and he no longer drinks for a very good reason. But back in the day, he used to drink quite a bit. And he tipped the light fandango a little too hard. And he was at this wedding, I think it was. And my dad kept saying, you got to go. You got to go. He's like, no, I'll figure out how to get home. Well, he decides that he is going to get home using the North Star. Now this... <laughs> Yeah. Now this man went on to become a pilot, like an actual pilot. Oh, yes. So he was a good navigator and he literally used the North Star. So he's going through people's yards. He got chased by a dog. He was hiking fences. No. And sure enough, he got home. But yeah, he made it home. He made it home. Okay. So the first beach that they check, bingo, her car is there. The car is in the parking lot and inside the car is her purse, her passport, hundreds in cash. 
a cell phone, basically all of the things inside her purse. Closer to the beach, they find her sarong, a sundress, a pair of sandals, and all this was sitting on a bar stool that was inside a building that used to be a bar, but it was destroyed by Irma. So it was pretty obvious that she was on the beach and they think she probably went swimming, but this was after a hurricane. It was not beach weather. So again, I mentioned our family has homes in Naples and I can tell you the beaches were not any place that you would have wanted to be following Hurricane Ian. So I would imagine it would have been similar following Hurricane Irma. They were literally toxic. I mean, like toxic. Yeah. They were filled with debris. So not only would the beach have been completely vacant, like nobody would have been there, but it would have been horrible swimming conditions and super crazy currents, potentially dangerous. I remember seeing pictures and there was like sheet metal from roofs. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, just tons of debris. I don't even know how one would go swimming. I remember during the last of uh, those Facebook groups that I followed for you, <laughs> they were saying some people were saying, oh, we found a beach that we're, we're just going to bring our kids for a little bit. And people were like, no, you can literally get sick. It's not even a dangerous things of stepping on something yeah. or anything like that. It's there. Are, there's chemicals in the water yes. that can make you sick. Yes. So obviously this would have been a very odd choice. But nevertheless, the Coast Guard searches and they don't find anything. Unfortunately, though, they only really had two days to do the search because there's 80 islands that make up the Virgin Islands, plus all of the little keys and caves that are not even considered actual islands before Maria hits as a Category 5 hurricane with 160 mile an hour winds. The island is just decimated. Following, resources are super limited. Many people are still missing both from Irma and Maria. So the ability to search for missing people is just stretched super thin. Hannah's mom came down to the island and she hires a private investigator. There have been countless sightings of Hannah, but nothing has proved to be her. Part of the problem is Hannah could be anywhere. Following Hurricane Irma, they were not really checking IDs to move people off the island. Their priority was really just getting people to safety. So she could have boarded a boat or a small plane and she could have moved off island and no one would have really known. There's a few leading theories that have prevailed. Number one, she went swimming in this fugue state and never made it out of the water. With the currents as they were, it would have been very challenging swimming conditions, even for the best swimmers. The Coast Guard did search up and down the current for signs of a body, but nothing has ever been found. Number two, she met her demise while in a fugue state during the hurricane that hit in the following days. Without adequate shelter and supplies, it would have been incredibly dangerous to be out there. Traces of her could have been concealed in the wreckage and, you know, maybe she just was never found. Number three, someone was able to take advantage of her during that fugue state. There have been sightings of women in drug dens that have resembled Hannah. I know one was definitively ruled out. There are still lingering thoughts that maybe perhaps Hannah was trafficked while she was in a vulnerable state. 
And I mean, it's a possible scenario. Not only was she clearly very vulnerable because of her mental state, but she would have needed some type of help to shelter from the storm. She clearly wasn't in her home and she didn't have access to her funds. So where was she? Trafficking works when predators leverage those who need something in exchange for providing their services. So, you know, unfortunately, she would have been kind of a prime target for that, especially if she's not thinking clearly. That's so sad. It is. It is just really sad. Number four is she's still out there, either willingly or still in some type of fugue state. She either chose this opportunity to start over or something, or she's still out there somewhere in this fugue state and is yet to come out of it. Unfortunately, I find number four less likely. I feel like either she's being held against her will or I feel like she would have probably been picked up. But I mean, we just don't know. There have been lots of sightings of her and I don't think anyone knows at this point. But what we do know is that she hasn't been found. So if you have any tips or you'd like to donate to the ongoing search efforts for Hannah Up, you should go to their Facebook page. It's www.facebook.com slash findhannahup, and up is spelled U-P-P-U-S-V-I for U.S. Virgin Islands. And I'll link to it in the show notes so that you can find it. So this dissociative fugue state is one of the most terrifying things that I've ever heard of. In Amber's case, she was found, but her memories didn't come back. Through her amazing family and therapy, she's been able to learn to exist in her life and incorporate these new memories into her life, but she'll never remember the birth of her four kids, and to me, that is just tragic. And then you have Hannah. She was told that she would never enter this fugue state again, but not only did she, but she possibly lost her life to it. And then she lived essentially her entire adult life with this cloud hanging over her of, you know, was she lying? Was she making it up? And, you know, was it going to happen again? The fear that it was going to happen again. It took so much from both of them and it came without any warning. While you're up at 3 a.m. worrying about when you're going to enter your dissociative fugue state. Which I will be. Yes, me too. Check out our show notes for these great sources. Disappeared, Memory Lane, Season 2, Episode 8. This is my favorite true crime type of documentary. I've watched every single episode of Disappeared, and they stopped making new ones. So shout out to ID Discovery. Please bring back Disappeared. But this was a really good episode. Unfortunately, you now know what happens, but still check it out because there's details that I didn't include in the story. Um, Also, Vanished in Paradise, The Untold Story. This is on A&E, and this was about Hannah Up. Again, there's more details in that that I didn't include here. Also, please remember to check out Hannah Up's Facebook page. We will put a link to her GoFundMe in our social media so you can donate to the search efforts. As I said at the start of the show, we don't ever want to do true crime without a purpose. I don't want to just make a spectacle out of someone's misfortune. So if you're going to listen please try to help either by donating or keeping the awareness of her case out there. And you can do that either by sharing her story, her Facebook page, or making a donation. So please check that out. And we are so excited to catch up with you next week. Yes, we'll see you next week. Thank you. 
The Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast is a Christy Kelly Strategy production. Sound by Joshua Shanks. Hello. Hello. Testing, testing. Testing. Me, 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 me.